I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello, I'm Sandra Davidson. And I am Anita Rao, and we are She and Her, and we have big things on the show tonight. The first is that Mother's Day is just around the corner, and we are bringing back one of our favorite feminist scholars to talk about motherhood. We're actually not bringing her back. We're bringing her on. She has yet to be on the show, but we are bringing back the moms, some of your favorite guests. And my favorite guests, to be totally honest with you. (laughs) Me too. So they're going to be meeting each other for the very first time on the show tonight, which I'm excited about. But um, before we get into our actual episode, we have a couple of news updates that we would like to share with you. So last weekend, Anita and I spent our Sunday afternoon at the Durham Farmer's Market, and we were there with Cageside Concussion, which is another radio show on WHUP. And They were having an event bringing together martial arts fighters from across the area. And we were there to interview women fighters who do jujitsu, taekwondo, um, kickboxing, karate, all kinds of things. And we were asking them why they fight and taking portraits of them, holding up signs saying why they fight. And so it was a really, really cool experience. And we're so grateful to have been included. And we're going to use those interviews and those portraits for an upcoming episode, but we first just wanted to say thank you for having us. And then our second big news update. Second big news that I feel like we've been we've been telling you all about for a little while now, but this was the week that we went to see Beyonce in Raleigh. We went with Sandra's mom. It was kind of a crazy experience. There was, <laughs> was. hail, there were high winds. Evacuation. Evacuation. The concert had to be suspended because of lightning. We were in traffic for more than two hours to get there, um, but we were in the presence of Queen Bee. Come hell or high water, we were going to do it. Literally both. Um, <laughs> and she's just as impressive in real life as she is and everything else. Um, so it's definitely a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Yes. Yes. So that was great. So on deck tonight, motherhood, the joy, the struggle, the politics, and some of the less-than-sexy details uh, that many of us don't even think about. Um, This show was inspired by a voice memo we received a few months ago from one of our listeners about her choice not to become a mother and the type of social pressures she interfaces with on a daily basis because of that choice. And we're going to play her call for you guys later in the episode. 
But the ideas she brought up really got us thinking about motherhood and feminism. So what kind of choices do mothers have and is being a mother a feminist act? So we wanted to bring on an expert who could situate motherhood and mothering within feminism. And luckily, one of my favorite mentors from college just is an expert on that subject. <laughs> so Natalie fixmer Orise is a feminist scholar who studies reproductive justice and motherhood. And here she is explaining how she came into this work. As a kid, I really grew up in an environment that was infused with feminist values, but there wasn't a lot of chatter about what that was or what that meant. But I was introduced formally to feminist writing and activism at 22 when I began my master's degree at UNC Chapel Hill. And that was a really transformative experience for me. All of a sudden, I had this language and critical frameworks for understanding phenomenon experiences that I couldn't quite name before that. And to me, uh, when it comes to reproductive justice, uh, that's an issue that resides at the heart of feminist struggles, right, insofar as the right to determine when and whether and with whom you create a family is just so central to human happiness and to our capacity to live fully and freely in this world. So that was Natalie fixmer Orise, and she's a faculty member at the University of Iowa. I first met Natalie when I was an undergraduate, a sophomore, I believe, at UNC, and I was taking a class. She was co-teaching on the intersection of scholarship and academia and social justice. And she's a really incredible teacher, and she's one of those people who not only talks the talk, but she walks the walk through her activism and advocacy. And she studies reproductive justice, which means she looks at a lot of the factors that shape women's ability to have agency over their bodies and childbirth. So... We asked Natalie to give us a sense of what it means to be a mother in this particular historical moment. You know, I'd like for you to unpack more the type of messages and images women get about modern mothering. And where are we getting those messages from? So I'll talk a little bit about intensive mothering because I think that's what you're referring to. Yes. Yeah. So it's an ideology that's predicated on perfectionism. It's predicated on women's wholesale devotion to children, and it locates children relentlessly at the center of women's lives. And scholars have paid attention, a lot of attention to this recently, and so have a lot of feminist activists, right? This idea of intensive mothering just speaks to the enormous pressures that women in our culture face. And and it goes by a lot of names, like people talk about the mommy mystique as a kind of reiteration of the feminine mystique. People talk about total motherhood, um, and Susan Douglas and Meredith Michaels talk about this as they call it the new momism. And I love the way they talk about it because they talk about momism as the new sexism, wherein women are no longer made subservient to men, but rather made subservient to children. And, you know, part of the problem is that it, it privatizes things that are actually social in scope, affordable childcare, the elusive work-life balance and makes women personally exclusively responsible for every aspect of childcare. And it's gendered because, you know, fathers get applauded for doing any kind of childcare, any kind of cooking or cleaning. Um, They land on the front page of Time magazine for being stay-at-home dads, which is something that, you know, women have done off and on for many, many years. And when women fail to, for example make a meal or fail to keep up a house or fail to provide children with endlessly stimulating creative and fun environments while feeding them and nurturing them, 
are made into bad mothers. So we have really uneven expectations. Um, and media, it's public policy debates, it's popular parenting manuals, it's emulated by public figures who actually marshal extraordinary resources to dedicate to mothering, like Kate Middleton or Beyonce or Angelina Jolie. So, um, you know, there, there's lots of places where this comes from. And I think, you know, those cultural expectations fuel how women feel about themselves as mothers and fuel the expectations that they have for themselves. And so it, it's a pretty hard cycle to break, <laughs> you know, because it feels like it comes from everywhere. Totally. Yeah. And I don't know how much you've been following um, the HB2 fallout in North Carolina, but it's what the one thing that's really been striking to yeah. me is how this image of sort of a pristine and sacred mother and daughter and woman mm-hmm. has in many ways become the center of this debate that like it's all about protecting this idea of what we think a woman should be when to just to sort of deter um, or deflect what the conversation is actually about. Yeah. And that follows like a long, that, that has a historical precedent, right? Because, you know, historically in the U S we have a really narrow definition of what it means to be a good mother, you know, wealthy white women for wealthy white women, motherhood was the primary vehicle for citizenship and civic virtue. They weren't enfranchised, but they were expected to bear and raise those who would inherit the Republic and motherhood became synonymous with white womanhood and to be a good mother was to be a white woman. And if you juxtapose that with the experience of um, enslaved women who were literally by law stripped of their status as mothers, and then their children were born into bondage, designated as slaveholders' property under the law, and that just fueled propertyed white men's rape and reproductive exploitation of black and indigenous women. And that was essential to, you know, propping up white supremacy. And so, you know, we have really deep, um, like, deep, wounded, traumatic, um, weighty history around this. And it, it just, it breaks my heart. I mean, when you asked me earlier why I study this stuff, I, I can't, I, I can't not study this stuff. It's, um, you know, it's animated my entire adult life in terms of my activism and my research. One of the women that you've written about in your work is Nadia Suleiman, or Octa Mom, I guess, as she's known in popular culture. Can you talk a little bit about her and why you chose her as a person to explore in your work? You know, she she's a really difficult public figure in a lot of ways. When her story first broke, when no one knew anything about her particular circumstances, this octuplet birth was just celebrated media outlets were talking about an extraordinary birth and a miracle of modern medicine. And, um, you know, there was this kind of culture of enthusiastic reproductivity that embraced actually the story. And then as things began to emerge to narrate her circumstances, right, that she was a low wealth woman, she was a single mom, she received state benefits for uh, at least two children that she already had who had disabilities, like so on and so forth. As things began to emerge, all of these insidious, like hateful, um, misogynist discourses really began to emerge. I mean, she was called egregious names, things that I don't even feel comfortable saying on the air, actually. Um, she was accused of 
getting treatment in Mexico and crawling across the border to give birth and, you know, in the blogosphere, which I just think is just incredibly racialized, like hateful, you know. So um, I was deeply disturbed by how her story was narrated in our culture. And I really see her as one of the ways in which, you know, motherhood gets policed in our culture, and especially when it comes to access to assisted reproduction. So generally speaking, women of Nadia Solomon's income status don't have access to those technologies. She managed to breach those barriers and people just lost their minds, you know? Um, And I do think that it, it raises a set of significant questions around what does it look like to misappropriate um, technologies like this, and what are the limits of those technologies, and what is safe for women and children, and so on and so forth. I think those are valid questions, but they weren't raised, for example, with the Goslings, who at that point in time were kind of reaching the peak of fame, and neither of them were employed when their sex couplets came home. And um, I think if we're going to ask those questions, we should think also about like how do we critique the 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 misappropriation or the overuse of these technologies by women of means, for example, right? So having that conversation can't just be about policing the motherhood of particular kinds of women. It should be a broader conversation where we're thinking critically about the role of these technologies in our lives. on the way politics, race, class, and the media shape modern understandings and expectations of motherhood. So we know that women experience a wide range of social pressures about motherhood, and one of those is just simply the pressure to become a mother in the first place. One of our listeners knows this pressure all too well, and she sent us a voice memo to talk about it. Ashton Navarro is an artist from Georgia, and here she is reflecting on her choice to not become a mother. Hi, my name is Ashton Navarro. I'm 23, and I just got married about six months ago. My husband and I, as individuals and as a couple, aren't really interested in having biological children for different reasons. We live in the South, so this feels like a really controversial decision. For my husband and I, marriage is just not a foundation for us to reproduce. It's more than that, and I resent that notion. I think it's a religious notion that says that people have to be fruitful and multiply, but I'm just not interested. I want to travel. I want to be an artist, maybe get another college degree, and I want to find ways to help others with my art. And I don't see myself being able to do all of that stuff if I had children. If I had children, I would want to invest time and energy into their well-being the same way that my own parents did for me, and I think that that would necessitate giving up some of my own goals in life. I don't know if there are a lot of other people that feel the way I do, especially in Georgia, because they don't really come forward and admit it, and I understand why. I definitely keep my own child-free status in the closet. I feel like If I come forward and say that I don't want children, I'm placated with people saying things like, oh, you'll change your mind or it's going to happen anyway. And I feel like 
responses like that are a stab in the guts to the years of work that activists in this country have been doing to get reproductive freedom for women. And reproductive freedom is really important to me. In my opinion, that includes the right to not have children without social pressure and without shame. So that's Ashton Navarro, who sent us that voice memo from Georgia. And we shared this clip with Natalie. And here is what she had to say. We're curious about, from your perspective, how you think this choice impacts women differently than men and how the politics of that choice sort of play out on gender lines. Yeah, you know, I really, I've heard a lot of stories like the one that your caller shared, and I commend her for her courage in sharing that story because it's difficult. We have um, a culture of that wherein it's really difficult to claim. Some people prefer the term child-free, some people prefer the term childless, but it's difficult to claim that identity and particularly for women, because we tend to think of woman as synonymous with mother. And so to be a woman who rejects motherhood is often something that is pathologized. Like there's something wrong with you. You're neurotic. You're selfish. Um, you're going to have an unfulfilled life. We really imagine that women can't have a, f- a full life if they don't have children. We don't assume that about men, right? Um, and so the response that your caller noted you'll change your mind. It's going to happen anyway. Those are really common responses. They're also really diminishing as, as she points out. And I love the way she said that, you know, that feminism is about the right also not to have children um, and without social pressure or shame. And so I, and I think she's right on about that. Do you have anything that you wish, you know, you could blanket across this country and tell the men about mothering that you've learned from your work and your research and your advocacy? Oh my gosh. I actually think if, <laughs> have you ever seen that slogan at the, at a, like reproductive justice gatherings, rallies where they say, if men could be pregnant, abortion would be a sacrament. <laughs> no, <laughs> I do. I do wish that, um, you know, on the one hand, as a culture, we're like mothering is the toughest and most important job in the world. But we we have no actual like support system <laughs> when the rubber hits the road, and so I think you know being able to determine if you will carry a child, when you will carry a child, with with whom you will create a family. Like to me, those are the deepest, most like just like core questions, and to me, it's so heartbreaking and egregious to see legislators in Washington attempt to make those decisions on behalf of an entire population. And it just, it's, it's, it's enraging. (laughs) It is offensive. It's downright wrong. And I don't know that I would wish that everyone could just, you know, experience pregnancy if only for a day or childbirth or something like this. But I do think that, if the people who had who were making those decisions and judgments on a regular basis ever carried a pregnancy, they might change their tune a little bit. Yeah, totally. One of my favorite podcasts is called Longest Shortest Time, and it's about motherhood and mothering, but mm. um, from a variety of perspectives. And she talks a lot about the childbirth process and childbirth injuries and even as a woman myself mm-hmm. who I feel like is fairly familiar with that world, like my jaw is always on the ground thinking like, what? Bodies do that? So just to think, you know, if everyone was sort of immersed in that world, how differently we would put into action our thoughts about women's ability to have agency over their own bodies. 
Yeah, there's this, it reminds me too of this, um, you know, the unrealistic expectations that we have of, you know, women to just like, quote unquote, bounce back from pregnancy. And like, you know, you see this in the tabloids, like her postpartum bikini ready, six week postpartum body. And you're just like, that is, that is nuts. That's bananas. Like nobody looks like that. Like, can we just give the women a break for a second? (laughs) The expectations of perfection are just all over the place, not just in terms of rearing children, but also in terms of like keeping up an appearance. And there's a scholar, Lynn O'Brien Halstein, it's also a friend of mine. She talks about this is the third shift of labor. Hmm. You know? I, uh-huh. Yes. I, I remember reading this article in the New York Times last year about how the French medical system and healthcare system, national health insurance system, helps uh-huh. women recover. I guess that's a word we could use to describe after childbirth. And they have several weeks of going to the gynecologist and doing Kegels in the clinic and doing all these things to like help a woman recover. And it's a part of their health insurance policy and health insurance system. And reading it, I was just like, wow, I mean, I can can only imagine what it would be like to live in a place that actually was mindful of, you know, the entire spectrum of the mothering experience. That's so interesting. This speaks to, I think, this like idea of um, intensive mothering, wherein the political or social issues are made personal and women are made personally responsible for kind of all these things that, you know, other people do, other cultures do differently. But historically, I just, I just read this recently that during World War II, when millions of white middle-class women entered the paid workforce for the first time, childcare centers for working mothers were not only federally supported, but some included expensive services like on-site immunization centers, shopping and food service that were provided to you with like groceries or meals when you picked up your children, infirmary care for sick children with like doctors on site, so on and so forth. Of course, when the war ended, federal support was withdrawn. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. For these centers, but when I think about the kinds of ways that we might support parents and specifically mothers and the ways that we refuse to do so, it's just, it's astonishing, right?
Natalie's work has become ever more personal to her, and she's currently working on a book about maternal politics and homeland security culture. It explores how this age of high surveillance impacts how we think about reproduction and motherhood. While she was writing this book, she also happened to be pregnant with her first child. And last year, she and her wife, Vanessa, became mothers to a little boy named Emmons, who will be turning one in just a few weeks. We asked Natalie to reflect on being a mother. You are a mother yourself, and I would love to hear you talk a little bit about how your work has affected and shaped how you think about mothering yourself. Yeah, it's it's been really interesting to carry a pregnancy to term and to become a mother in the process of writing this book. And I think I'm more committed now than, than ever to reproductive justice, in part because, you know, that just that experience of pregnancy and childbirth, I mean, to to force someone to carry a pregnancy against their will just seems to me to be the most egregious form of violence. That feels very raw to me as a new mom. In terms of being a mom, I think my research prepared me for the work and the pressures of mothering. (laughs) But I also feel like I was underprepared for the joy. I know that sounds really cliche, but, you know, I do to be totally honest, find myself at a loss for words when I try to adequately express the love that I have for my child and how that experience has really changed me in incredible and unanticipated ways. Um, I think you had asked me at one point about my goals as a mom, and I, I want to raise my child as a feminist, and I have so many amazing models for that style of parenting, but I also, given my research, want to give myself a break from all the pressures of perfectionism and, you know, allow myself some room to grow and change and, you know, make mistakes and know that the love in our family can overcome hard things, which is, I think, easier said than done. Do you have any motherhood mantras, things that you and your wife sort of tell yourselves or tell each other about what you want for yourselves as mothers, what you hope for yourselves as mothers, um, lessons to live by? That's such a great question. Um, The mantra that my wife and I have had for a long time, and it feels even more, um, even more salient now as, as we've grown in, in becoming parents and moms um, is uh, thank you more, please. (laughs) Because we just feel so grateful for the life that we, that we have. And our child is, this awesome human being that we get to watch experience the world for the first time. And I've learned so much from my baby about, you know, just wonder and awe and slowing down and enjoying little things and just the sweetness of a different kind of love. Um, So I just, I, I just try to try to be present in every Every moment, because like that podcast is perfectly titled, the one that you were referencing earlier, it's it's a really great encapsulation because the day-to-day sometimes can feel really challenging or long, but our baby is going to be a year this month, and it's just, it's unbelievable.
That's feminist scholar Natalie Fixmer Orais. And that was about the sweetest thing that I have ever heard. Natalie, thank you so much for joining us on the show tonight. And it is truly an honor to call you a listener. We love it. So coming up next, you're going to hear from some of our most special and favorite guests, our moms. We are bringing them on together to reflect on their own experiences of motherhood. Hello. Hello, moms. Hello. Hey, how are you, Sheila? I'm good. It's so nice to talk to you. Nice to say hello to you. Great to talk to you. And happy birthday. I know your birthday was this week. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was great. <laughs> I had a lovely day. Oh, good. Good. Well, we are excited that you two are able to meet electronically and excited to have you both on the line. As you know, you're some of um, our most treasured guests on the program. So we appreciate your taking the time to join us again. I guess we do. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Not charging fees here. <laughs> I know. I know. I've heard it all before. <laughs> um, so we have a lightning fire round of questions, but I guess first we'd love to know um, if you have any thoughts about what you've heard on the episode so far. Anything stirring in your brains? Mom, you can go first. Yeah, no, I, I just liked your last segment. It was very sweet. The mom talking about... Um, slowing down I thought that was very pertinent and where you know that to be in the moment with the baby which is wonderful that she's thinking like that because I think that's that's, that's great she has the right right um attitude I like that what do you think Rebecca well I think it was it was a wonderful segment and I think she's great and the thing that really resonated with me was her comment about not really being prepared for the joy that she has experienced in being a mother. That that really struck a note with me. Well, Because I know exactly what she's talking about. Well, <laughs> our first question of our lightning round is very different than that experience. <laughs> so our first question for you guys, and Mom, you can go first, is what was the most unpleasant thing about childbirth? Golly, you put me on the spot because I don't want to be too candid because I really don't want to discourage you and Anita from any. Oh, oh, Let's see. Well, well, the t- childbirth process for me, I would say the most unpleasant thing was different with each of you. The first time it was being told that I had to walk because my birth process was proceeding so slowly that was a way to stimulate uh, <laughs> the process <laughs> supposedly was going to stimulate contractions and walking down the hall of the hospital holding onto the wall while you're undergoing contractions was not a lot of fun that and I'll say like not very hell. successful <laughs> <laughs> yeah and the second time when Lizzie was born um, after she was born and I've had another C-section I'd had a cold, and so I think the most unpleasant thing was having to hold a pillow against my abdomen and cough to Ugh. be sure my lungs were clear. Oof. Yeah, that sounds terrible. <laughs> it wasn't terrible, but it wasn't fun. Well, I have a very low tolerance for pain, so this is, <laughs> well, this is all worth knowing for me. to reveal <laughs> <laughs> Well, Mom, how about you? So, you, I mean, you were a midwife, so you were very prepared for sort of what that looked like from the health practitioner end, but what was it like for you to actually yes. experience that yourself? Yeah, I think, you know, the physical part for me was not that difficult. I was, 
I was very disappointed that I was a horrible, horrible pusher because I just thought I was going to be fabulous <laughs> and just really great. And like at a two-hour junction, they were like, well, you're doing a really good job, but there's no sign of the baby. And I was very upset, <laughs> incensed more than upset. I was very disappointed in myself. <laughs> but more than the physical, like the the logistics of having the baby, I think the hardest part for me was that my naivete in thinking that I was sort of invincible and that I would not need help. And I had t- told my mom and I, you know, everyone, you know, we're going to manage everything ourselves. I am going to be great. I don't need any help. And like two days after Priyanka was born, I was weeping and wailing like, <laughs> oh, my God, I can't do this. And <laughs> looking back, I was, you know, that was me. You know, people wanted help and I didn't want help. So uh, I think it was more from my my mindset was messed up. Um, Hmm. Nothing physical. (laughs) That makes sense. How about about the most challenging thing about mothering itself? I know that we've been really talking about Oh, the most challenging thing about mothering itself, yes. Let me tell you. Um, (laughs) Tell us, Sheila. (laughs) Tell you. Well, I think one of the most challenging things for me was letting go, principally when you all went off to college. That was really very, very hard. Um, second most challenging thing is when you when you feel your kids are doing something wrong and you have to bite your tongue and pick your battles, um, <laughs> giving them the space to make their own mistakes. That's hmm. really quite hard. Um, you know, then letting them suffer the consequences of doing something bad and you, you know, no jumping in and helping. I'm, I'm very, very bad at that. <laughs> um, and I still struggle with that. <laughs> <laughs> we can do a um, whole different episode about the mistakes that we've made from y'all's perspective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they probably want to do an episode about the mistakes that we've made. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, that's oh, yes. definitely yes, on the yes, docket. Yes, yes, yes. That's the one. <laughs> what about you, Mom? I, I think the most challenging thing for me was was always trying to, to stay ahead of the curve. And from the time that you and your sister were born up until the time that you did go off to college and beyond, I will say, you know, things are constantly changing. You're constantly changing. You're growing and you're developing and uh, trying to understand that, to process that, and to kind of be prepared. That was a big challenge. And as you know, because you thought I read too many books, I was a reader. (laughs) So learning that there were developmental stages and that there were some things that were predictable was very helpful to me. Um, and I also found that that was the most fascinating thing, and I, something I really loved was the challenge of it. And um, it was just fun. It was hard. It was really hard at times, but it was also fun. Well, that's a perfect and, uh, Well said. <laughs> well, thank you, but you know what? <laughs> Well, I was going to say that that's the perfect segue to our next question, which is what's been the most rewarding thing about mothering? Well, that's a, a very easy question, and the most rewarding thing about it, or rewarding things about it, are you and your sister. There's no question about that. It's just the great joys of my life. Thank you. <laughs> How about you, Mom? Yeah, the same. I mean, watching you all three of you now be adults and take care of each other, seeing how caring you are the, the, and the wonderful qualities you display just makes your heart burst. And see, and seeing you exceed all of the expectations that I ever had in your contributions to the world and to helping people, I mean, you can't ask for more than that. And I know there's a lot of negative things said about motherhood, but we love it. 
what advice do you have for young mothers or new mothers? I oh, guess yes, might I be have, more accurate. Yeah. For young mothers, I would tell them to enjoy, really enjoy their children at every stage of their life. Give them your time. Give them yourself and, and don't give them things. Things are not important. Kids really don't want lots of possessions. Don't over-schedule them. Um, go with what your gut tells you to do, not, not what everyone else thinks you should do and gives you advice. If you feel it's right, go ahead and do it. What about you, Mom? Well, I would echo everything that Sheila has just said. And I would also, I would also tell a young mom to just relax. Just don't be so hard on yourself. Don't don't expect to be perfect. Don't expect to do a perfect job of parenting. Don't expect to do a perfect job of of organizing the world. Just relax and, as Sheila says, enjoy because that's there's so much there to enjoy. And the other thing I would say is that as your child gets gets older. You're going to have to, in my opinion, you're going to have to not be the peer, but be be the parent. And the flip side of that is if you say no or if, if you and your child encounter a disagreement or a bump in the road, know why you feel the way you do, but also try to understand why your child feels the way that he or she does. And if, you know, if you've made a mistake, say so. And if they've made a mistake, say so. But just relax. Relax and enjoy. I I couldn't agree with you more about that. Well, what are your motherhood mantras? You heard Natalie's. It was, thank you, more please. And she's obviously at a different stage of mothering than the two of you are. But uh, what what would you say your motherhood mantras are? Motherhood mantras? I'm going to let Sandra's mom go first. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I think my most common mantra, this is going to sound hokey, but is that I'm the luckiest mother in the universe. (laughs) Oh, it's true. I say that to myself all the time. I say that to my girls all the time. Gosh. Yeah. I just, well, if you are, I'm number two because, I mean, we have the best kids ever, you know? We can be co, um, we can be co number one. Well, y'all, thank you so much for coming on. We love you both. We do. And happy Mother's Day. Well, Obviously, this episode is for y'all. <laughs> it is. Aw, thank you. Bye, moms. All right. Guys, take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Oh my goodness, that was amazing. That was so great. <laughs> so those are our moms, Sheila Rao and Rebecca Davidson, chatting with us about the joys of motherhood. And meeting each other for the very first time. And meeting each other for the very first time. All right, that is our show for tonight. Thanks so much to Natalie Fixmer-Orize for joining us. She and her is broadcast every Thursday night from 6 to 7 on WHUP FM in Hillsborough, North Carolina. You can find us at She and Her Radio on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And where else can people find us? You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and on Acast um, and check out check everything out there we can add images and make our episodes fancified so (laughs) check it out and you should write us a review on itunes um it's very important it helps people find us please stop what you're doing right now and write us a review our theme music was composed by cameron laws and sam gerwick and we'll see y'all next week good night
when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code GLOW.